Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from Christ Jesus and from our Lord and Father. Amen. We close out our first John preaching today, and we finish the letter. Can't help but feel like we just finished a show on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or Peacock or CBS All Access or Fox or HBO Max or Disney Plus or whatever it is that you'd like to watch. And now we have that feeling like, what are we going to do now? See, I don't know if you know this, but the struggle is real if you finish a show. If you put in 58 episodes, almost half your life, and then it's just over. Start questioning, why do I even own a TV? You kind of just sit on the couch, flipping channels, scrolling, searching, finding nothing. You don't have to ask around. People will just come to you. They'll tell you what to watch. You'll try it. You'll be a little hesitant. It won't work out. You Google things like, if I liked Liv and Maddie, what should I watch now? But in the end, it's over. You loved it. It's gone. Now what's next? What's next? We keep looking for what's next. And when we preach a series or we go through a book, there's this, I don't know, maybe this unconscious feeling that since we just finished that book of the Bible, now we need to put it away, cross it off the list of books that we've gone through, and we've got to get ready to move on as well. But when we put it away, when we have that, I've gone through this before way of talking about it, we ignore the heart of 1 John itself. We ignore this letter that we've just spent weeks looking at. We must caution ourselves against finishing sermon studies, a sermon series Bible studies in a way that mirrors how everything else is done in our lives. We have to make sure that we don't approach sermon series, Bible studies, reading certain books as entertainment. Waiting for the next best thing or the sequel, you'll read 2 John, 3 John and be like, you know what, I kind of preferred the original. But today, today we look at the last nine verses of the text and like all good writers do, John tells us what he was going to tell us, then he told us and now he tells us what he told us. In fact, if you open your Bible and you see it, it even has a little paragraph that calls this the end, the concluding affirmations. So let's look at this together, shall we? This is verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John concludes with the statement that the essence of the Christian life is eternal life. Not in a Dracula way where you live forever or a Groundhog Day if you prefer Bill Murray over Bram Stoker, but in the way that we have heard. Jesus Christ, the Son, possesses eternal life and has given that to us. That here and now, today, we have been given a share in the very life of God and that when this mortal body ends, we will be with Him forever. For in God there is peace, a peace that passes all human understanding. For in God there is power. You have not been given a spirit of fear or timidity. You have been given a spirit of power and courage. In God there is holiness. You have been clothed by the very blood of Jesus Christ. And in God there is love. This life that we have been given and everything that comes with it, for we are the beloved children, has been given to us from Jesus Christ. And we know, he says. John says, we know this is what we have. Verse 14 says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked 
of Him. John says plainly and simply, God hears us when we pray. He is always listening. He is more ready to hear us than we are to pray. There is no need to try and convince God to listen to us or to hear us, to try and force our way in or compel Him. He is waiting for us to come to Him, and we stand in the very presence of the loving Father and can be confident to speak when we pray. He lays down three important pieces of prayer that should shape our lives. He spoke to the obedience, that prayer is something that we must do. It is not an option. That when we pray, we are to remain in Christ, for we are never apart from Him. And that when we pray, we pray in His name and in accordance with His will. John gently shows us that prayer must become less about what we want and more about what God wants. That in prayer we ask, but we also must listen. And if I'm being honest with you, you know, in the conclusion of John's fiery letter here, I would have expected him to speak again about loving your brother or sister. I mean, after all, he did call us to love in a way that says something along the lines of, if you don't love God, then you aren't of God. He says things like, if you don't help someone that you see who is hurting, then that is a sin. Prayer seems a bit passive, does it not? But prayer is never passive. I think John concludes this beautifully by saying and calling us to love by praying. Love by praying. And when we look at those examples in the, ba- in the Bible, we see a pattern. Let's look at Nehemiah for a second. Nehemiah was very scared to go to the king of that country and ask to be sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. He was afraid that because he was so downcast, or before he, because he was going to ask to leave, that the king would kill him. So what does he do? He sends up a little prayer. But then what does he do? He speaks and he asks to be sent. Jesus in the garden prays, Thy will be done. I want this cup taken from me, but not as I would have done, but as you would have done. And then he goes to the cross. We have a hard time of finding an example in the Bible of someone praying for something and then that person not doing anything at all. Maybe if we're being honest, we want to see that example, we have to look at ourselves. I know I see it when I look in a mirror. I pray for something and then I don't do anything. John would remind us that when we pray, the task is not yet completed. How amazing is it when God uses us as the channel of His grace for what we ask and for what we pray for? How, is a, how amazing is it when we pray for healing and God brings doctors and nurses in who make that healing happen? How amazing is it when we pray for those who are lonely that they may find hope and peace and then we arrive to sit with them? How amazing is it when we pray for a break from the habits of sin and the addictions that would keep us from becoming becoming right? And in that moment of temptation, how amazing is it when we put down by the grace of God what we don't want to do? This life that we have been given. The one that we have received from Jesus is a life that can be free from the power and control of sin over us. Not a life that is free of sin, but one that will be free of its controlling power. And in prayer, 
we line up our lives, our hearts, our very souls with the will of God and ask for what He alone can give, power, peace, courage, strength, and love. We pray, we love, we pray, we love. John goes on to say, if we see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Let's leave that up there for a little bit. There's no doubt that this is a difficult and in some ways, I think, a disturbing passage. First, we see again, of course, that prayer for others is an act of love. But what is this sin that it's talking about? Now, are we looking at this for a way of saying, okay, what is this sin that's leading to death here? Because, you know, I want to have a little bit of fun, but I certainly don't want to go to hell. Or are we looking for it as being like, okay, now I can tell my neighbor, hey, man, you did this, so you're going where it's hot. No, 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 no. We're going to approach this for our knowing. What is this saying? And we might be tempted to think that this is maybe mortal sins that are punishable by death here in this life. But it's quite clear that this has nothing to do with breaking human laws, however serious. And it's quite clear that it's not about suicide, as if what we did would lead to our damnation, and that our salvation is dependent upon us and not Jesus Christ. We might think this is a sin maybe about what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians. Do you remember that? People sinning against the body and blood of Jesus and then God was putting some of them to sleep. Maybe it was about that excommunication thing at the beginning where the guy kept rejoicing and I don't know. I know in both cases that the punishment was coming so that people would turn from their sin and it would be restored and not lead to death. So I know that's not it. There were some who said that after you've been baptized, any sin that you did would not be forgiven. That doesn't really line up with Scripture, does it? As if once we're baptized, we become able to not sin. Unless, of course, you want to be baptized 24-7, which I wouldn't recommend. There was this time in the church where they thought that if you denied the faith at all, then you could not be forgiven. I seem to remember a story about a disciple who denied the Lord, and yet our Lord graciously received him and forgave him. Maybe John is talking about denying Jesus in the flesh. He seems to be bringing that up as a major point. It is hard to know with a certainty what John is saying about this sin. Maybe if we take the focus off the sin itself and we look at where it leads is the real issue that he's speaking about. I think then we can find some clarity in this. I think sinners start out in two ways. There's those who sin against their will, meaning they sin because they were either swept up by passion or desire and the moment was just too strong for them. Sin wasn't so much a choice that they made, it was just kind of a compulsion that in that moment they couldn't resist. 
then there's the other one where we sin deliberately, where we purposely take our own way, even though we know it is wrong. Now, the sins may begin in the same way for all of us, right? It was just an accident the first time, and then it became something more. But as beloved children, we feel regret, we feel guilt, we feel remorse when we sin. But what happens when we allow ourselves to enter into that tempting state, to go to that sin over and over again, each time failing? Does the sin not become a little bit more easier? I think the danger John is talking to, this sin that leads to death, starts when we think we can get away with our sin and that there will be no consequence. Those feelings of self-disgust, remorse, and regret lessen and lessen, and then suddenly we have no problem with our sin whatsoever. That is the sin, friends, that leads to death. When we begin to revel in sin, celebrate it, make it a way of our lives, then we know that we are on the way to death. Perhaps the sin that he's speaking to is when we choose to love sin more than God. I said this was a difficult and disturbing passage. And if you're anything like me, you started to get a little bit worried about some of the things that you've done or doing. Thanks be to God for His mercies are new every morning. God does not desire the death of sinners, but that they would turn to Him. Christ Jesus came not to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. If you are sinning or your sins frighten you, if you are afraid, do not stand there paralyzed. Run to the cross and one, run to the one who is already waiting for you. Does your Lord Jesus not run to you immediately? Robe ready to put around your shoulders, ring on your finger and sandals on your feet. Does he not kill the fattened calf for you and welcome you with open arms? You worry about the sin that leads to death. Friends, turn to Jesus. We worry about our friends whose sin may lead them to death. Friends, pray for them and turn them to Jesus. 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. Friends, you are human. We sin. This does not say that you are not born of God. What this says is come to God, like we did at the beginning, in confession. You are born of God and have been set free, no longer a slave to sin. And it is Christ Jesus himself, it says, who has set you free, and more than that, keeps you safe. No one can snatch you from the Father's hands. Do not let the lies of that pathetic garden snake overtake you and cause you to be afraid. 
Turn from the distractions that we will see in verse 19. You're looking for a show to watch, something to distract you? I know because I do it too. But the Lord stands here, waiting, ready for you, ready to give you something so much more than 43 minutes of entertainment and, and distraction. He comes and brings you life and hope and love. For you are children of God. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. But the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. By being in Jesus, He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, why wait? The Son has come and given us understanding and purpose. There is so much love to be given and so much love that is needed. This is not love that consists of extraordinary things, but doing ordinary things. We have been called to heal wounds, to unite what has fallen apart, and to bring home those who have lost their way. You want to love? And you don't know where to start? Start in your heart with God. Love Him most. Then move to your home, the people God has given you. Then move to your community, your neighborhood, your work, your church. Then move to the world. You want help on how? Start with prayer, John says. Who are you actively praying for? You want help loving in your home? Start with the questions. If someone walked into my house today, would they know that I follow Jesus? If someone listened to the way that I spoke to those who are in my home, would they know that I follow Jesus? When they watch how I interact with the people in my house, would they know that I was his disciple? You want to know how to love your community? There are people who need food. Help us give it out. There are 130 families in a 10-mile radius of this very spot where we are sitting who are one step away from having to give up their children and put them into the foster system. We want to love. We have to stop pretending that is not our problem. We have to help them. And if you want to know how, take the active step to either sign up online for our event or send me an email and we will get you plugged in. There are 400,000 foster children in this country at any given moment. And not all of them have a place to stay. How long can we look away and pretend that's not our problem? We don't see them. If you are hurting, if you are hung up, if you need care for yourself, if you are lonely and need to talk, pray and then reach out. We have a care community here for you. We talked about celebrate recovery for you. This is not a life that is meant to be lived alone. And I know that it is not easy to ask for help. But help is here. This is not a community for show. This is a community that strives to love as Jesus has loved us. Children of God, family of God, called to be loved and to love one another. And then the text just ends with this bizarre random line. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. 
Why end with idols? John hasn't mentioned anything about these idols the entire letter. What does this final letter, this final word have anything to do? Don't forget what he has said already. John has taught us and is training us that our identity as beloved children of God who love one another is centered on Jesus and his full humanity. Jesus' personal, relational life of love for us. Jesus' personal and relational life with you. And John has mirrored that with us as humans who are to have personal, relational lives of love with others. You want to know why he says idols? Because he's warning us against depersonalizing and dehumanizing Jesus and everyone else in our life. When you depersonalize something and dehumanize it, you basically don't need to love it anymore. Keep yourself from idols. An idol is everything that God is not. An idol is something that we can use, manipulate, come to whenever we want to, deal with it on our own terms, never have to change, love it or even acknowledge it. But this life, this Jesus, is everything idols are not. When you think first, John, you remember love is relational. And when love is relational, we got to come back to the words over and over again. we got to come back to Jesus over and over again. And we must pick ourselves up every time we fail and continue to love each other over and over and over again. This sermon series may be over, but our love for God and our love for each other does not end. Three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest... The greatest of these is love. That's a show that doesn't end. But when we keep coming back to time and time again and live together. Amen?